Well, I want us to take our Bibles tonight and turn to John's Gospel, the Gospel of John. We are returning once again to our study of this great Gospel. And if you're like me, I uh, I, I love the Gospels because um, because as you're reading them, you can kind of place yourself in the Gospel. You can... You can let your imagination run a little bit, not trying to add to it, but, but putting yourself there and putting yourself in the shoes of the disciples or in the shoes of the situation or in the, the moment in which you're reading about. And, and so we've done that over the last several weeks and months as we have been looking at chapter 13 on in the last final days, really, of the life of Jesus Christ on earth. And so we are here tonight in chapter 16 once again and, and uh, focusing our attention on what is quickly becoming the last hours, really, of Christ's time with the disciples. And as you have noticed over our time, we have titled this series, uh, The Final Instructions to a Saved People, because these are Jesus' words to the disciples. These are Jesus' final words to those who have been following him closely. This isn't with the general crowd anymore. He is now only with his disciples, and he's giving them instruction for uh, what is going to come, not only in the immediacy, but what is going to come following that and to prepare them for all that is happening. And to just get our thinking started tonight, I want to ask us a question um, for us to think about. And really, it's a, a question that I think you've probably thought about in your own life. And the question is this, it's just simple, what do you fear? You know, we have people who put bumper stickers on their cars, and we have people who wear shirts and things like that that say, no fear. Uh, what do you fear? Um, what do you fear most? Uh, the world has listed a whole host of fears or phobias that people have, we are a fearful people in the world. I, I don't know what it is you may fear, but but I was curious as to what the world might fear, and of course with the internet and the advent of the information age, we can find that stuff out rather quickly, and if you type that in the search engine of your choice, it'll probably pop up with some kind of list. And, of course, that's what it did. And it gave me the top 100 phobias that are listed uh, for fears in the world. And, of course, I don't want to read all 100 of them, but I'm going to give you the top 11. Maybe some of these are yours. Arachnophobia. Ah, you know. You know the fear of spiders. You might want to know that it affects women four times more than it does men. 48% of women, they say, have arachnophobia. Or aphidiophobia. Some of you have that, I know. The fear of snakes. Ah, the fear of snakes. Avoiding certain cities because they have snakes or certain countries because everything that is on the ground wants to kill you. Acrophobia, the fear of heights. Um, agor agoraphobia, the fear of open or crowded spaces even. Um, 
Sinophobia, the fear of dogs. Astrophobia, the fear of thunder or lightning. Of course, we all know this, claustrophobia, small spaces. Misophobia, the fear of germs. Aerophobia, fear of flying. Aerophobia, a lot of these are based upon Greek terminology. Uh, Tripophobia, some of these are even hard to pronounce. Tripophobia, the fear of holes. Fear of holes. I'm not sure if that word tripophobia means your fear of tripping on holes, uh, but the fear of holes. Even in their definition, they said the fear of holes is an unusual but pretty common phobia. Unusual common. Isn't that a contradiction? I'm not sure what that is. Carcinophobia, the fear of cancer. Uh, Thanatophobia, the fear of death. Glossophobia, the fear of public speaking. The list goes on and on and on through throughout them. Some of them were, were bizarre. Now, why, why do I bring all that up? Certainly not to make light of the fact that fear is a real emotion. We all have it. Uh, it's a God-given thing to uh, certainly uh, keep us from going to certain dangers, right? There's a, a, a natural fear that is a right kind of fear in that sense. But, but uh, I don't bring it up because of that. I bring it up simply to bring up the reality that for the Christian, for us as Christians, we have to understand that fear of things here, fear of things on the earth is not of the Lord. 1 John 4.18 clearly tells us that understanding the love of God casts out fear. Here's what it says, 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Fear involves punishment. Now, the implication in 1 John 4.18 is that if we understand the love of God, which the perfect love of God is Christ, Christ is the personification of the perfect love of God, then if we understand the love of God, who is Christ, and we have a relationship with Him, then there is no fear of punishment. No fear of punishment in any kind of way. And so, to fear in this world, the things of this world, and even those things that I referenced, is to not fully understand the love of God, or not fully live according to the love of God is probably a more accurate way to say that. And I want us to understand that every fear is linked with that reality. Every fear is linked with that reality. Why do I say that? Because the worst thing that could ever happen to us as a person through any circumstance on this earth is that we stand before God and be judged and condemned by Him forever. That's the worst thing that could ever happen. But if there is no fear of judgment because you are in Christ, 
then all of the other ways in which we might fear are just temptations for us to not trust in the reality of our actual security in Christ. Because perfect love casts out fear. And the perfect love of God is Jesus Christ. And here is the wonderful anchor for our soul of that reality. Here's the wonderful anchor of our, for our soul for knowing and understanding the love of Christ. You ready for it? Here it is. The resurrection. The resurrection. Our understanding of the resurrection ought to cast out fear in every kind of way. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ is referring to in our passage tonight. There is no need to fear. There is no need to be troubled because, Jesus says, I will rise from the dead. And for the disciples who were with him that day, that was a close but future reality. His physical rising from the dead and in his rising, all who are in Christ have been risen from the dead. So it was a future reality for them and yet for us. The resurrection, our resurrection spiritually, is an already accomplished reality. It's not a future reality at all. It's an already accomplished reality. We talked a little bit about that this morning. So it's a bit ironic that God would have us in this passage here tonight at the same time as what we were studying this morning. But I want to read these verses for us and then begin to unfold them together in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. Notice what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, A little while, and you will no longer behold me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And some of his disciples, therefore, said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not behold me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, What is this that he says, a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said, A little while, and you will not behold me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. Now, for us, as it seems it was for the disciples, when you read this passage, it seems as if Jesus is being a bit vague in his words. We can be rest assured that that is not the case. Jesus is not being vague at all. There was coming a time for them, it would be soon, just in a few days, in fact, 
in just a little while, as Jesus puts it. That word in the original language is where we get our word micron. That's the word, micros. It's a very small portion of measurement, a small unit of measurement. So Jesus says, in a very small unit of time. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples that they were about to enter into a time of apparent uncertainty about the reality of his existence. And I want to suggest to us tonight that it was an apparent uncertainty on three different levels. First, on one level, there was uncertainty or an apparent uncertainty between the time Jesus' burial and his resurrection. There's this time when Jesus is buried to the time when he's going to be raised from the dead. There's somewhat of an uncertainty as to the existence of Jesus Christ in their mind. But as you read this passage, there is a second level where there is this apparent uncertainty between his resurrection and and Pentecost when the Spirit was to come. Because Jesus has already told them that the Spirit was going to come. And it was to their benefit. It's to our benefit that I go away. Verse 6, I have said these things to you, yet sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, this helper shall not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. So there's this ambiguity, this, this apparent uh, uncertainty about when that's going to happen. And then third, there's a third level, and it's an apparent uncertainty from the time of his ascension to the time when he would return again. And that's where we fit. That's where we fit. All of these surround the reality of the resurrection, the apparent uncertainty from not seeing Christ right now. And so let's just take these one by one. The first is the apparent uncertainty for them which came between the coming death of Christ and his resurrection. And this is really the one that that this passage, I think, focuses on the most. The other two are, are drawn in from other places. So let me just read through this text again, and, and, and you can hear the words to just kind of hear the uncertainty in their minds. Jesus says, a little while, and you will no longer behold me, and then again a little while, and you will see me. That's the declaration. I'm going to die, and in essence, uh, he's saying, I'm going to die, and, and I'm going to rise again. Then, of course, there's ambiguity in their minds. They're saying to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? A little while you'll see, not see me, and a little while you'll see me again because I'm going to the Father. And they're saying, what is he saying by this? A little while, we don't know what he's talking about. And Jesus, they're wishing to question Jesus, but they're afraid to question Jesus because they, they want to look as if they do understand, and Jesus knows that. And so he says to them, are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will behold me, or you will not behold me, and again in a little while you will? And then he kind of tightens it up a little bit for them to tell them what's going to happen in the interim. Truly I say to you, you're going to weep and you're going to lament, but the world will rejoice. You're going to be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And he gives the example in verse 21 of the birth of a child. And so he says in like manner, verse 22, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice 
and no one will take that joy away. So this is the most obvious of the implications for us to understand. Jesus is bringing comfort to those who were his close followers on the evening of his arrest and his physical separation from them. This is what will take place in just a few short hours. They are surely going to be sorrowful. They will all be troubled internally as to what is happening. They will all be wondering what's going on. They will all be tempted to fear. And some, if not all, will in fact fear. But very soon, their sorrow will turn to full joy. Why? Because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. Now, Jesus has clearly taught them this before. In fact, we ought to fully know this truth. We ought to fully embrace this truth as Christians. Go back to John chapter 13 and verse 31. He speaks about his soon-to-be glorification. When they had gone out, Jesus said to them, after Jesus was betrayed by Judas, Jesus speaks to his disciples. He says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Jesus speaks of his glorification. The betrayal has happened. The plan is in motion. What I came to this earth to do is happening. Judas has gone out. The, the, uh, the evil one is trying to accomplish what he hopes will be the final end of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is saying to them, no, this is a moment for my glorification. Of course, he's referring not only to his death, but he is referring to his ultimate return to the Father. And we know that he was speaking of that because of the very next verses. Verse 32 and 33, if God is glorified in him, in the Son of Man, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him when? Immediately. Little children, I am with you. Here's that phrase again, a little while longer. You'll seek me, and as I said to the Jews, and now say to you also, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus is speaking in terminology that is flying at 30,000 feet over their heads, and they're not understanding it all. They're not getting it all. We know that Peter understood some of what he was saying, at least on an earthly level, because Peter understood a little bit about the term a little while, at least on, on, a, on an earthly level, that it was going to be an imminent event because he asked Jesus in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Peter, Peter understands this, this idea of, of leaving, at least in a physical proximity kind of way. Where are you going? And Jesus answers him by saying, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. And that's exactly what happened with them, wasn't it? They had spent three years with Jesus. Jesus had taught them. He had given them what they needed to be prepared for this very moment. They hadn't missed a, a lesson. Jesus hadn't missed one point of teaching 
and then when the situation takes place, they seemingly did what we often do when trouble comes, when the circumstances of life come about and, and they're rocky and we don't understand all the details. What do we do? We're tempted to fear. We forget that Jesus has risen from the dead. We forget for our practical living that He is alive. We forget that being a Christian means that I am in Him. It means that I am in the resurrection because He is the resurrection and the life, John 11 says. But you don't know my circumstances. But you don't know what I'm going through. That's what happens. That's what goes through our minds. Listen, for the disciples, there was a multitude of reasons why they might be tempted to be fearful and sorrowful. Multitude of reasons. One, they had personal loss, actual personal loss. Their close friend, their teacher, was now going to be gone. All of us have experienced that in life, some kind of personal loss. Two, they had given up everything to follow Christ. They had left homes, friends, families, jobs. And with him gone, now what are they going to do? What's going to happen to them now? Three, they were going to be left with the people who reveled in the reality of killing Christ. They're being left with the enemy. Jesus tells them, you're going to weep and mourn. The world's going to rejoice. In fact, all of this potential disappointment was actually robbing them of their joy. All of the disappointment, all the potential circumstance was robbing them of their joy. Why? Because they hadn't embraced the truth of the resurrection. They were robbed of joy. And I think we can get ourselves into that same kind of mindset when we don't understand the full essence of the resurrection. This has been just exploding on my mind recently. I don't know if you've recognized this about the disciples after Christ rises from the dead and they go on in Acts to start preaching the gospel. Every single one of them preached the resurrection. They were killed because they preached the resurrection. This was the message that challenged people. It was the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection is everywhere. In every letter Paul talks about, he talks about the resurrection. This was the essence of the gospel. Jesus Christ is alive. And here... They are robbed of their joy because they don't get it. And I think it happens to us. Sometimes we lose our joy because we relegate the resurrection to something future. To only a future reality. To only something that's going to take place in the future. We consider the time when our physical bodies will be changed from this mortal to the immortal as the only resurrection there's going to be when in fact we have already been raised with Christ. We fear here 
because we actually haven't embraced the truth of the resurrection for our daily living right now. Our sorrow remains because we have forgotten our spiritual resurrection has already happened. And we are to live as those who are spiritually alive now and not as those who one day will be made alive. Do you see the difference? This was the disciples. They're all confused. Why? Because they're only thinking on an earthly level. They're only thinking on the physical plane. Certainly they would experience natural sorrow from loss. Certainly they would experience disappointment in watching the world rejoice in all that was taking place and in the mocking and killing of the Savior. But when the resurrection would come, their sorrow would be turned to joy. Notice what it says in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned to joy. Did you pick up what he he says there? Let it rest on you for a moment. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. Do you notice that Jesus does not tell them that after the sorrow would come joy? You notice he doesn't say that after your sorrow you will find joy. No, he says your sorrow will be turned to joy. In other words, this sorrowful moment that you see as a sorrowful moment really in reality for you is going to be the most joyful moment of your life. It didn't mean that their circumstances would change when he said your sorrow would be turned to joy. Nothing was going to change for them at all circumstantially. What Jesus said about their weeping and lamenting and sorrowful would in fact happen to them, and it actually did happen to them. Their entire circumstance in their minds was a complete tragedy. Jesus dying... Them being left alone, the world hating them and hating him, that was in their minds a tragedy. Jesus still dies. Jesus is still taken away. The crowd is still rejoicing. He is still buried. Their hearts are still sensing the loss. But the entire event would be, Jesus says, for them turned from sorrowful, to a glorious, joyful event. Why? Because he rose from the dead. The entire event would be a joyful event because of the resurrection, because it was to be in just a few hours and they would see him again, not dead, but alive. Their sins would be paid for. The wrath would be appeased. The condemnation would be assuaged. 
the event that seemed so tragic in their hearts and in their minds would be the event that would bring so much joy to their life because now in a standing before God, they were no longer condemned because Jesus had satisfied the entire wrath of God. Do you see? The circumstance that seemed to be so sorrowful now was actually a joyful one when they understood the resurrection. I want you to go for a moment with me over to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 because it's an interesting perspective to see the change that happens in the disciples. And I want to read it from two different versions. I I think the New International Version kind of says it best. But I I want to touch on it in the New American Standard first. Beginning in verse 36, Jesus, of course, has already died. He has gone to the cross, he's been buried, he's risen from the dead, and now he is appearing to those whom he's appearing to. And while they were telling these things, this is he had met these men on the road to uh, Emmaus, and he had opened up their minds to the Scriptures, explaining the Scriptures to them, and then he disappears, and they run back to tell the other disciples about this. And while they're telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, here's the verse that is interesting. I think the New International Version says it better. I'll read it in a minute. And while they still could not believe for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? While they could not believe for joy. You see, their doubts were hindering their joy. Their their doubts and their fear, their startledness, their wonder was holding them back. Here's how the New International Version says it. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, they disbelieved for joy. They had no joy because they weren't believing. And he gives them a piece of broiled fish. Jesus takes it. He eats it before them. And he says to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. We just talked about those in John chapter 16. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. This is what was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. All this must be fulfilled. Then... He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer 
and rise again from the dead the third day. Jesus Christ preached the resurrection. Christ should suffer and rise again, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. And look at verse 52. A massive change happens. And they return to Jerusalem with what? Great joy. From verse 41 to 52, a massive thing happened in their heart. They went from frightened and this uncertain state of what's taking place to total confidence in who Jesus Christ is, and now they're filled with great joy because he's alive. A complete change of perspective. And so the first apparent uncertainty was about the immediate resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you see in Luke 24 that that uncertainty faded when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and they saw him. The second, though, I believe, was about the coming of the Spirit. In verses 5 through 11, Jesus had told them that it was to their advantage that he go away. It's to our advantage as believers that Jesus go away so that we have the Spirit. We looked at that. So that they might receive the indwelling Spirit. He's told them that. It's to your advantage that I go away because the Spirit needs to come. And I'm going to send him. I have to go away so that I can send him to you who would lead you. He's going to lead you into all truth. And you, by the Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the Spirit's job. You're going to go, share the gospel. That's what the Spirit's going to do through you. And then in the same context of the very same passage and without any seeming missing a beat in his words in what he is saying as if it links clearly together, Jesus begins to tell them, in a little while you will no longer behold me. And included in that is not just the resurrection but the coming of the Spirit also. Jesus says the Spirit's coming. Jesus says you're not going to see me. And Jesus says when he says in a little while, in micron time, not only is the Spirit going to come, but you will see me again as well. On the day of Pentecost, that happened. And they became the witnesses to the world so that even us right here today, you and I are trophies of the grace of God through the faithful ministry of the gospel going out through them by the power of the indwelling spirit. We are saved because Jesus left. The spirit came and the gospel spread and God by his grace opened our ears to hear the gospel And so we cannot help but think of us now in the church age. Each and every one of us being indwelt by the Spirit so that we too are witnesses for Jesus Christ. 
And our own sorrow is now turned to joy. We rest in and we look to our resurrected Savior, our living Savior. We can, when we do that, walk in endurance the race set before us, can't we? That's what Hebrews 12 tells us to do. Here's what it says, Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. What Jesus? The only one there is, the living Jesus. We're looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, we endure the race set before us by fixing our eyes on Jesus, which encourages our endurance. And if that's how our endurance is encouraged, then we better fix our eyes upon and in the only place we hear of Jesus. And where is that? In His Word. You better have your life fixed there. You better have your eyes fixed there. You better be turning away from anything that would hinder your discipleship of having yourself fixed there. That's what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said, lay aside every encumbrance. Lay aside every sin that so easily entangles us so that we might run with endurance and not be tripped up. So right here, this speaks to the immediate resurrection in the term a little while, and it speaks to the coming of the Spirit who came in just a little while after the resurrection. And then lastly, there is the sense in which a little while encompasses the future of Christ's return as well. The future of His return, because even though we have the Spirit in us, we are still at times tempted by the circumstances around us to be sorrowful and downcast, aren't we? Even though we have the Spirit in us, even though we know Jesus Christ, even though we know He is alive, we are tempted by the circumstances, by having our eyes fixed here, to be sorrowful and downcast. But the resurrection tells us none of this is permanent. None of this lasts forever. Jesus Christ is coming again. And it will only be a little while. A little while. That's what he's referring to at the beginning. A little while and you'll no longer behold me. And again a little while and you will see me. He's referring to the immediate resurrection. He's referring to the coming of the Spirit. He's referring to the future return. And we live here, oftentimes as Christians, sadly, as if the resurrection was only a future event. We get consumed by fear. Convince ourselves we just have to get through the best we can. If I can just cope with the moment. No. No, we are alive now if Christ is in us. We are alive. Our souls are alive. We are spiritually alive in Christ. Our souls will never die. 
There's nothing, as Paul says in Romans 8, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Since he is alive, we are alive, and all we are waiting for is the day when we will put on immortality. That's it. That's all we're waiting for. When the physical will be removed, the fullness of the spiritual will be revealed. alive. We have to live in that way. This is what Jesus is saying. Listen, guys, because I live, you live. Because I'm alive, you're alive. In fact, I'm reminded of Jesus' words to Martha when she was distraught about her brother. John 11, verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Of course, when we were studying that, I I reminded us that the Jews had had this kind of bizarre superstition tradition that within three days, the spirit would come and resume the body if someone was going to rise from the dead. And now it's been four days. There's no way this guy's going to walk in their minds. Of course, Bethany is near Jerusalem. Mary and Martha are home with their brother. They're concerned about him. And Martha, when she hears Jesus is coming, she goes to meet him. And Martha says to Jesus, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's distraught. She's troubled, confused, thinking earthly. And even now I know that whatever you ask of God... God will give you. She doesn't even get it that Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus says to her, your brother shall rise again. What's Martha thinking of? Yeah, I know he's going to rise in the resurrection on the last day. See, Martha is thinking like we think. I know that when the resurrection comes, the future resurrection, he's going to rise again. I know that's going to happen. I'm okay with the fire insurance plan. It's okay. I know he's going to rise again. What's Jesus say to her? Listen, Martha, I am the resurrection. I'm it. The resurrection's right here. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. I'm the resurrection. So John 16 is all about the resurrection. This is all about the resurrection. The actual resurrection of Christ that would be very the very resurrection security of every soul that has ever believed upon him and who will ever believe upon him. That's what this is about. The reality of the goodness that Jesus had to go away so that we might receive the Holy Spirit in us to lead and direct us in the truth of Christ. That's what this is about. And it's about the perfect revelation of His coming again. The end of all time. 
and he would come to judge the world. What a joy. What a a comfort. What a comfort. What a joy to live the resurrected life. This is why Jesus could say to them in verse 22, you have sorrow, but I'll see you again. And your heart will rejoice. And no one will take that joy away from you. Beloved, the resurrection is our peace. It is our peace. So I'll ask you where the same question I asked you at the beginning. What do you fear? What do you fear? More importantly, why do you fear? Why? He is alive. He's alive. That is our joy. That is our peace. Now let's pray together. Father, tonight we thank you once again for just this time in your word. Thank thank you that we can be reminded of the wonder and the majesty of the resurrection. It's not just an Easter message. The resurrection is a life message, a message by which we ought to embrace always because of who you are and what you have accomplished. Thank you that you have given us a joy that no one can take away, that what may seem to be a difficulty, the circumstances of life that may tempt us to fear, tempt us to be anxious, and tempt us to be filled with uncertainty, Lord, we can simply just rest in you. That even the worst that could happen to us here was our body be removed and we move into immortality with you forever and ever and ever. Now, Lord, help us to not fear. Help us to just be so settled in our hearts knowing that we are alive because you're alive. And this world is not our home. And that even though right now we don't see you, we know you are alive. And you've given us the Spirit who leads us in truth. Thank you for that. Thank you for the comfort that that brings us, the joy that that gives us. Help us to embrace that by fixing our eyes on him. For your glory and because of our Savior, we pray these things. Amen.